I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Morgan Stanley. Today's Thursday, April 22nd. Airline bookings are up, new U.S. jobless claims are down, and we're focused on European soccer's not-so-super league. Just after midnight this past Sunday night, 12 of the richest and best-known European soccer clubs announced an agreement to form what they called the Super League, an exclusive competition that would have completely upended both the structure and economics of the world's most popular sport. It was a bombshell announcement. For U.S. equivalent, uh, imagine if the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, and Cubs decided to all break away from Major League Baseball and then merge with the L.A. Lakers and Dallas Cowboys. Sure, that wouldn't make much sense, but honestly, neither did the Super League. Yes, did, not does. Pay attention to the tenses there, because Super League lasted less than three days. That's less than a Scaramucci or a Quibi. So what happened? In short, everyone hated the idea, other than the owners of those 12 teams. Fans protested loudly on social media, politicians threatened legal action, and European soccer's ruling body threatened to kick any participating players out of World Cup competition. By Tuesday afternoon, Chelsea became the first team to bail. Other clubs soon followed, often in statements that included apologies to fans, players, and staff. By the time we all woke up on Wednesday morning, the Super League was officially, quote, suspended, with only Spanish club Real Madrid hanging on. So today we wanted to get the inside story on the brief rise and very quick fall of Super League with Financial Times sports editor Murad Ahmed, who's been breaking all sorts of news about it. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Murad Ahmed, sports editor at the Financial Times and co-chair of the FT Business of Football Summit. Let's start here. We mostly have an American audience. Can you give us just a sense in Europe and in the UK, particularly, kind of the centrality of soccer, or as you guys obviously call it, football? It's not only the kind of national game in the UK, it's an obsession across Europe and really across the world. And the biggest clubs, the likes of Manchester United in England, Juventus in Italy, Real Madrid in Spain, have global followings, but they also have long histories and passionate fan bases in the cities that they're based. So there's a lot of fervor, there's a lot of chatter, you know, which players teams are going to sign and things like that. It's just part of the the dinner table and pub talk that you see anywhere and everywhere you go. News of the Super League first emerges uh, this past Sunday night. How how kind of fully baked was the proposal at that point? Or, or was it really kind of a draft that got out there? Well, it turned out to be half-baked, if if anything. What happened was, over the course of the weekend, 12 of the richest clubs, based in England, Spain and Italy, all decided that they were going to join this project, which actually had been months in the making. It was a project that had been long thought about, and actually has sort of been decades in, 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 in the making. But they all got together in some frantic phone calls and signed on. And around midnight UK time came this release pinged into all of our inboxes that they were they were going to break away and form this European Super League which essentially was going to shatter the power structures in the sport. When you say shatter the power structures the the perception at least from folks like me business reporters was that that this was as you say the the owners of the richest teams saying we'd like to get a little bit richer we're tired of kind of subsidizing or carrying the load for the weaker teams. Accurate way to understand what they were trying to do. 
it's pretty accurate. I mean, the owners um, couched their decision to go in a couple of different ways. One is that they they said that there's a financial crisis in in football or soccer, as you call it, which is actually true. Some of the biggest clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Inter Milan, have huge debts and are worried about how they're going to pay them off as a result of the pandemic. Stadiums have been closed. Hundreds of millions of euros in gate receipts lost. Fiorentino Perez, the president of Real Madrid, who's the main architect of the Super League, has said that this is a league not for the rich, but it's going to save football. He touted trickle-down economics, uh, said that a lot of this money was going to go down to the smaller teams over time. And they did pledge um, you know, about 400 million euros in what they call solidarity payments, which is just essentially payouts to all the smaller teams. But if you looked deep inside the documents, which I've uh, had sight of, you actually start to see things that look much much more like the NFL and the NBA in the US. You know, revenue sharing agreements are pretty equal amongst the teams. Cost caps, which are pretty much unseen in European soccer. Spending limits. If you really analyze the detail of that, what they were trying to do is get regular profits, regular uh, revenues that were completely reliable and not related to how well you did on, on the pitch. And so that was a kind of a radical new economic model for the sport, at least at the very top of the sport. Was there any individual or maybe a particular club that was really driving this Super League? Real Madrid were the ones who were driving the project. They are Spain and indeed Europe's most successful club. But it has to be said that many of the clubs involved also had U.S. owners. Manchester United is owned by the billionaire Glazer family, who also own the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Liverpool is owned by John W. Henry, who owns the Boston Red Sox. AC Milan is owned by the hedge fund, Elliott Management. And they are accustomed to U.S. ideas of how to run sport. And a lot of those ideas was filtering down into how the Super League was going to operate and work. So this gets announced, and it seems that there's massive pushback from fans, from politicians, and obviously from the governing bodies of soccer and and other teams in the league. What ultimately kills Super League so quickly? Is it one of those groups, all of them together? So over the last couple of days, it's been impossible to find anyone who was in favor of this plan. This is the way it was bungled. This was a plan kind of cooked up by 12 billionaires, each calling each other, in the middle of the night, telling each other that this was a really good idea, but they hadn't canvassed the fans, clearly, but they hadn't really even told the players, the coaches, no, the main executives. Nobody seemed to know about this plan. And so when it was shot out there, there was they hadn't spent any time building support. Obviously, the fans really were apoplectic and, and, um, uh, and very seriously against this. Uh, the main reason they're against it is because it, it eliminates the pyramid structure of, of European football. So what do I mean by that? It means that any team, no matter how small, can slowly, through playing well on the pitch, kind of clamber their way up uh, and get into uh, and get into the top competitions and win them. This would cut them away. The super club teams would have permanent places in them. And fans actually understand the sport and understood the implications of it. Politicians came out um, against it because why wouldn't they want to follow their electorates, essentially? The key problem was 
in Britain, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson not only came out against it, he said he would put a, he would send a legislative bomb against the plan, and that threat actually rang true. the The problem in the EU is that there's all sorts of legislation and precedent that says that they that politicians and politics doesn't get involved in sports governance issues. But Britain has just gone through Brexit, it's no longer in the EU, and actually could legislate in lots of ways to stop the English teams participating in the Super League. And one by one, a combination of actual legal threat, political threat, and the fans, the English clubs were the first to go on Tuesday night. One by one, they kind of uh, they um, they withdrew from the project, and that is why the whole thing crumbled. Did you learn anything kind of inside the the pullouts? There was clearly lobbying on on the English clubs, but it, it turned out it from everything that I can see that not all the clubs felt that strongly about joining this thing. There was a lot of fear going on at the time that they were all signing up that they were going to get left behind, that this new tournament was going to get launched and the biggest clubs were going to be in it. And they were all signing up partly because completely out of fear that they wouldn't, uh, as somebody put it, they'd be left on an island that is sinking. Then they saw the reaction and realised they had, it turned out, little to lose by exiting. And now we have a situation where it's basically Real Madrid on their own still advocating for this project. For the Super League participants, was part of this almost trying to extort the Champions League, which is already restructuring, to basically get a better economic piece of the pie? That has always been one of the theories behind what the Super League uh, was really about, a bargaining chip to get more out of the Champions League. And actually, over the last few months, one of the Super League participants, Andrea Agnelli, who's from the kind of Italian industrialist family that owns Juventus, has has had this powerful role in a body called the European Club Association. Essentially, it's a kind of a trade body that negotiates on, on behalf of clubs. Very powerful role. And he'd negotiated all these concessions for the Champions League. Part, you know, this big reform of the Champions League, which means more matches against the biggest teams, but also kind of economic controls, economic power over the competition. That had all been negotiated. And then on a whim decided to join the Super League instead, going from unsure about it to joining that project. And again, the fact that they came out and announced it, and, you know, they had a flashy website, they had a PR team, they had lawyers, they had bankers. It was a serious project. I think ultimately what the clubs decided that what they really wanted wasn't concessions, you know, incremental updates, a little bit more power. What they really wanted was guaranteed places in the competition, just like NFL teams have in the NFL, which means that they know that w- what uh, what they're going to be in year in, year out. And unfortunately, fans were not having it. Is Super League dead and buried? Or is it, as the press release said, just suspended for now? Yeah, I think it's a zombie league at the, uh, at the moment because there were legally binding agreements that have been signed up to. So it looks like all the clubs that have said that they're withdrawing are in breach of contract. Now, it depends on the remaining Super League clubs, which, like I say, appears to be just one club and one man, have to to try and decide 
are they going to try and enforce this thing? What what would be the point of trying to enforce it? I've really dug deep into the contracts. It doesn't appear to be break clauses or, or things like that. There are some legal fees that probably have to be paid up. So we're not quite sure how that will work. Fiorentino Perez of Real Madrid says he's going to try and reshape the competition or negotiate with UEFA to come up with some settlement. But there's no need to reshape or have some negotiation if there's no teams that want to play in the Super League. Final question for you. What's the general mood among European soccer fans right now? Is it basically dancing on a grave? Absolutely. You know, everyone is who follows football at, at this level is delighted. But what they haven't noticed, and this is something that we're going to do a lot more reporting on, is that earlier in the week, on, on Monday, you know, this big reform of the Champions League did take place. That does transfer a lot more power to the clubs. That does end up with commercial control of the competition going over to the clubs. In those ways, the game is moving in the direction towards the biggest clubs. So they may be celebrating now, but the look and feel of European football is still, it feels to me, still moving towards those clubs. And if not a Super League, it is a Super League in all but name. Murad Ahmed of the Financial Times, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today are bugs, specifically around 750 million mosquitoes that are set to be released soon in the Florida Keys. Why would anyone want to do such a thing? Well, because these are genetically modified mosquitoes created by a British startup called Oxitec with the goal of preventing the spread of human diseases like the Zika virus and dengue fever. Here's how it works. The Oxitec mosquitoes are all males, and they contain this genetic modification whereby their offspring die young, thus reducing the overall population of mosquitoes, which in Florida have become increasingly resistant to traditional pest control techniques like insecticide. So Oxitec has already released more than a billion of its bugs in places like Brazil and has sign-off from both the EPA and Florida state officials. Some locals, though, are opposed, loudly opposed, arguing that there could be unpredictable impacts on the broader ecosystem as mosquitoes are a fundamental food source. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, and Alex Sugiara. Have a great National Earth Day and a great National Jelly Bean Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.